This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. The modern church is so weak in its theology that we are confused and as a result are disintegrating. We don't know the Bible and as a result, we don't know God because the purpose of the, the Bible is to reveal the heart and nature and doings and workings of God. So what we've done is we've combined God and secular humanism. And humanism tells us that life is all about us. The Bible tells us life is all about God. So obviously we're confused. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Now in this episode, Pastor Jeff continues his Unpossible series. He's making his way through Judges chapter seven and looking at lessons we can learn from the life and actions of Gideon. Pastor Jeff has identified seven resolutions in this passage that can help guide our lives. In this message, he's up to resolution number four about learning to solely depend on God. Let's get into the rest of this message now. What is God doing in all of this? God began this journey of stripping Gideon of everything he depended on other than himself all the way back in chapter six. Let me read it. In the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it cut down and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. So God had told Gideon, before I, before I give the Midianites into your hand, you gotta tear down those false idols. You gotta go and you gotta tear down Baal and you gotta tear, tear down the Asherah pole. So the people got up and noticed it had happened. In verse 29, they asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded Joash, bring out your son, he must die. So you can see how committed the Israelites are to God, right? Because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's case? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by the morning. If Baal really is a God, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So because Gideon broke down Bel's altar, they gave him the name Jerubel that day saying, let Bel contend with him. The first thing God tells Gideon to do on this journey of his greatest victory, of one of Israel's greatest victory in their history, you got to go first of all and tear down that altar of Bel and you got to destroy the asteroid pole. Now, let's go back to a series we did early in the year called Under the Influence. Who is Bel and what is the asteroid pole? Baal is a false god that still is in the Western culture to this day. Baal is the king of the gods, the leader of the spirits. He is the god of economic wealth and prosperity. You worship and pray to him when you want your crops to grow. He's called the Lord of rain. He's often portrayed with a lightning bolt in his hand. He's also referred to as the chief god, the Lord, the master of the gods. In short, Baal is the god of prosperity. And the Israelites were praying to him worshiping him. Ashtoreth, she is referred to as the seductress, the enchantress, Ishtar. And in the Bible, she's called Ashtoreth. In short, she's the goddess of all sexual immorality and fertility. So if you want fertility, 
You pray to her. You worship her. You engage in sexual immorality as a demonstration of your trust and faith in her. Now, because Israel had not kept their covenant with God and had allowed the gods of the Canaanites to infiltrate, to enter their land, the Hebrews now had blended their religion with the religions of the Canaanites. So their go-to now for prosperity was both Baal and Yahweh to see which one would deliver. Their go-to when they wanted fertility and reproduction was the Ashtoreth and Yahweh. Now stay with me, get a little history lesson, but it'll all come out in the end, we'll put it all in the funnel. Okay. In the Torah, there is something called the principle of Shadnez, which is, I guess, best described as a principle of illicit mixtures. You're taking two things and you blend them together and ultimately it leads to confusion and destruction. So Gideon and the Israelites had mixed the worship of Baal and the worship of Yahweh. And now they're being destroyed. And as a result of being destroyed, they also, because they've confused the gods, they don't know and they can't recognize the voice of God. And worse yet, that kind of uh, a secretism limits one's ability to distinguish between the voice of God and the voice of the evil one because the evil one works through the false gods and can in fact communicate. When you worship the false gods, when you serve them, that God of the demonic world can communicate and speak things into your life. And so you've got him speaking into your life. You've got Yahweh speaking in your life. And if you're not totally committed to one or the other, there's confusion and destruction. Now, let me give you an example uh, of what I believe the Torah is trying to express here. The closer that I draw to my wife, the more I understand her. The farther I go away from my wife toward other things, the less I understand her. The relationship at that point has become confused because I don't know what she's thinking and I don't understand her actions. So there's confusion and disintegration. I also, because I'm not closely related to her or intimate with her, I also start making assumptions about her that are not true, pure conjecture. And the assumptions are based on a lack of relationship and intimacy. So here's, listen, this is important. Here's what the modern church has done. We have attempted to serve all the gods. We want Yahweh, but we want power, money, and sex as well. So much so that we think we can use Yahweh to get our false gods and idols. These are the gods of our time. These have become our go-to. Now think about this, our peace, happiness, and significance. When we lose our peace and our happiness and our joy, we think the more money we have in our bank account, the more happy we'll be, but it never works. There's a vast number of young people in our culture today who are being sold a bill of goods that can never deliver. And the bill of goods is this, sex is the ultimate. That's where you get everything, identity, meaning, significance. In fact, a local social commentator says this, sex has become a metric of one's self-exploration or measure of how liberated they are, it, it's become an identity marker. So what we've done is we've combined the gods. The modern church is so weak in its theology that we are confused and as a result are disintegrating. We don't know the Bible and as a result, we don't know God because the purpose of the, the Bible is to reveal the heart and nature and doings and workings of God. So what we've done is we've combined God and secular humanism. And humanism tells us that life is all about us. The Bible tells us life is all about God. So obviously we're confused and we're disintegrating inside the soul every day. 
We're told by churches even that God is the genie in the bottle. Rub the lamp three times, he'll give you whatever you want. That God is about you. The life is egocentric. That God would never allow, I've heard this, that God would never allow you to suffer or experience any pain. That God wants you to be rich and be wealthy and God will help you. His purpose is to help you get the desires of your heart. And we define those desires of our heart as the other gods, wealth, power, sex, whatever it is. Well, false, 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 and false again. Stay with me. There's a lot of debate right now surrounding the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. There are many who believe that according to the Bible, the temple will be rebuilt and will stand its an original place and that'll be a sign that the end is near. The problem is the golden dome of Islam stands there right now. So it would have to be destroyed in order for the temple to be rebuilt. So some suggest that, well, there's going to be an earthquake and the earthquake will knock it down and then we'll be able to rebuild the temple. However, politically, an earthquake that destroyed the Dome of the Rock would not change anything. The world's demand to keep peace with Islam would always remain. They'd just rebuild the, rebuild the dome. Some other people, theologians, suggest that the Islamic Dome of the Rock has dominated the Temple Mount for well over a thousand years, but it's just a few meters south of where Herod's temple originally resided. So it's feasible that if there's a peace cord signed between the two groups, that the two edifices could exist side by side. But the problem goes back to the Torah, Sha'anetz, the principle of illicit mixtures. What we find in the scripture is the Lord is not willing to share his standing or his land with pagan deities or secular gods. One has to go, one or the other. So in Judges 6, stay with me as we build this. In Judges 6, God speaks to Gideon. That same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on top of its height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now, here's what's interesting about this text. The Lord tells Gideon to destroy the false gods. We can't stand by side by side. You got to get rid of them so that your go-to becomes God, Yahweh, and Yahweh alone. You can't call on Baal and Ashtoreth at the same time. You need to cleanse yourself and you need to cleanse the nation. You need to repent. Now, please stay with me. God says, here's how you're going to cleanse yourself and get ready for this victory. One, he says, you're going to take the second bull. Here's the problem. If you read the text, where's the first bull? Second bull is actually the words, the bull of bullocks. It's translated second bull, but if you read the text, there's no first bull. There's only one bull. The Hebrew root means the highest ranking bull. Rank is determined by age. The older the animal, the greater its worth or value. And God specifically asked for a seven-year-old bull. And it's no coincidence that the number of years of oppression from the Midianites has been seven years. So the purpose of the bull was atonement for each year of Israel's rebellion. And then he says, I want you to take down that Ashtoreth pole and I want you to chop it down. And then I want you to use it as firewood, adding insult to injury. What's happening? All right, let's bring it all together, all these pieces of the puzzle. The same thing is happening in chapter seven that happened back in chapter six. Not only does God want to lead Israel to do everything that brings him the most glory, 
He also wants to strip away their go-tos when the odds are stacked against them. Whatever they think will save them, whatever they think will provide safety and security and salvation, whatever they're banking on for the victory, that thing has to be stripped away. You cannot serve God and the other idols. You can't. God will refuse us to compete with your other go-tos. So he's going to strip everything away that you go to till the only thing left is him and he's the only thing you can go to. There is no better commentary on this, I believe, concerning the idols of our lives than what Tim Keller explains in his commentary about idolatry. Here's what he says, and I quote, the biblical concept of idolatry is an extremely sophisticated idea, integrating intellectual, psychological, social, cultural, and spiritual categories. There are personal idols such as romantic love and family or money, power and achievement or access to a particular social circle or other emotional dependence of others on you or health, fitness, and physical beauty. Many look to these things for the hope, meaning, and fulfillment that only God can provide. Idols are not simply gods constructed out of wood and iron. They are ultimate things that have captured our hearts. The things we look upon and say, if I have that, then I'll feel as though my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. These are things that are given a, that are, these are things that are given a controlling position in our hearts. We spend most of our passion and energy and emotional and financial resources on these things without a second thought. These are our go-tos for hope, significance, and security, a career by body and physical appearance, money, a political or social cause, romantic love, even a creation or recreation. The point is that God detests idol worship because not because it's bad for him, it's bad for you. So God must destroy all the things you're gonna trust in. He must strip you of everything you're gonna depend on when you enter the battle. Because life is like this. Relationships break up, jobs are lost. Relationships experience conflict. Health reports come back and they're not always good. Careers are often left in shambles. Friends betray you, people disappoint you. And for most people, listen, now when the battle comes of everyday life, God is your last resort. You would never admit it, but your actions tell a different story. So we've been praying around our church for revival. We desperately want revival around this place. We, we want to see God the way we've never seen him. We want to feel him the way we've never experienced or felt him. And we want to gain the sense of volition. We're able to do things we never thought we could do. The problem is when you pray for revival, two things, or a lot of things, but two things are essential. Number one, God has to remove all barriers to revival. And only he knows what they are or who they are, and it's going to hurt. Second, God has to refine the one praying for revival. Robin, my wife said to me when I told her we were praying for revival, she said, get ready. God has to remove the barriers. And quite frankly, God has to refine you, Pastor Jeff. Changes have to be made in you. And both of these are going to be painful. And of course, when they start happening, even though it's what we want, my personality says, whoa, is me. My life is so tough. I mean, look at me. And I complain. I'm frustrated. I tighten my grip on the things that God is trying to remove. So when our lives are not turning out the way we hoped they would, rather than turning to God and thinking that God possibly has another road for us to travel, that he's saving us from a road that he knows leads to destruction, that he's shaping and molding us. We start fighting him the whole way, 
even though we're the one that's prayed for it. We want to take back the reins because it's uncomfortable. It was the enraptured Rutherford who wrote the words, praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. Listen, to these are words that have been around through generations. He says, the hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feeling and intelligence, could present another side of the story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who lives to pound it into submission, to beat it down, out of sight, and clinch it into place. That is the nail's view of the hammer, and it is accurate except for one thing. The nail forgets that both it and the hammer are servants of the same workman. Let the nail but remember that the hammer is held by the workman, and all resentment toward it will disappear. The carpenter decides whose head will be beaten next and what hammer shall be used in the beating. That is his sovereign right. When the nail has surrendered to the will of the workman and has gotten a little glimpse of the plans for his future, it will yield to the hammer without complaint. The file, he says, is more painful still, for its business is to bite into the soft metal, scraping and eating away the edges till it has shaped the metal to its will. Yet the file has, in truth, no real will in the matter, but serves another master, as the metal also does. It is the master and not the file that decides how much shall be eaten away, what shape the metal shall take, and how long the painful filing shall continue. Let the metal accept the will of the master and it will not try to dictate when or how it shall be filed. As for the furnace, it's the worst of all. Ruthless and savage, it leaps at every combustible thing that enters it and never relaxes its fury till it has reduced it all to shapeless ashes. All that refuses to burn is melted to a mass of helpless matter without will or purpose of its own. When everything is melted that will melt, and all is burned that will burn, then and not till then, the furnace calms down and rests from its destructive fury. With all of this known to him, how could Rutherford find it in his heart to praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace? And the answer is simple. He loved the master of the hammer. He adored the workman who wielded the file. He worshiped the Lord who heated the furnace for the everlasting blessing of his children. Can I ask you something? What's your go-to? You've heard me ask you numerous times, what is it about us that thinks we know better than God how our lives should be going? If we are his children, he's gonna dig those trenches through the course of our lives to do whatever it takes to get us on the path for which we were called, for which we were made. Because only on that path do we experience shalom peace and the extraordinary life. Again, the most concise work written on this topic comes from Tim Keller in a book called Counterfeit Gods, where he says most people spend their lives trying to make their heart's fondest dreams come true. Isn't that what life is about? The pursuit of happiness. We search endlessly for ways to acquire the things we desire, and we are willing to sacrifice much to achieve them. We never imagine that getting our heart's deepest desire might be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. It all comes down to what you believe about origins, what you believe about God, being created in the image of God and being used as an instrument of God for the purposes of God. There's a grand weaver. He must strip everything away from you that's your go-to so that your go-to becomes him so that you can gain endurance to stay in difficult situations until he completes his work in you. If you keep going to those other things, you'll never get to God and God's not gonna compete with your idols. You can't go to those things and go to him as well. It doesn't work like that. One's got to go, one or the other. 
So God will often strip you of everything you depend upon other than himself so that you will go to him first, gain enduring power. Hupomone, the Bible calls endurance, staying power so that God can complete his work in you. What you don't realize when you kick and scream and try to get out of the battle by manipulating the events and people around you to your own purpose and causes, what you're actually doing is you're fighting against God himself. Gideon is facing a fierce battle. He knows the odds are heavily stacked against him. His men have been sifted down to 300. He's banking on great, a great military arsenal. I have to believe that. And now God has to take that away too. Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. I know the last two messages have been difficult because the implication is that there are times when you're going to kick and scream and God's not going to get you out of this. That he's the grand weaver and he's weaving this beautiful design, this tapestry. You got to stay in it. I could give you numerous illustrations. I'll give you one. So I've got a friend that uh, loves mountain biking and he's got some pretty expensive mountain bikes and he came home one evening to realize all of his mountain bikes, not, not just one, all of them had been stolen. It's a lot of money. And he was really up in arms. It was an uproar. Oh my goodness, I, I can't believe these bikes are gone. You know, I, these are my favorite bikes. I spent so much money and time making sure the bikes were built exactly to my, my shape, my frame, my weight, my height, everything. The time and the energy and the money that's going to cost. This is terrible. This is an unfortunate event. Well, it just so happened that my friend's father knew the local police and he went and talked to them and said, look, man, can you find these bicycles, please? Can you do what? Because usually a theft like that, you know, there's bigger fish to fry. But my friend went to the chief of police and said, look, can you help us with this? Can you find these bikes? So they went on a massive search. Took a while. They actually found the bikes. But you know what else they found? They found two little children who were being abused and starved, hungry. And because of the stolen bikes, the police were able to rescue and save the lives of these two little kids. My friend said, you know what? I have to believe that while we lost these bicycles, as a result, two lives were saved. See, this is the point I've been making in this whole series. You have no idea of all the dots that are connected with the unfortunate events of your life. God wants you to start to look at everything, even when somebody steals your bicycle, everything. As something that was allowed into your life but there's a bigger plan and a bigger purpose. And sometimes you will never see it. My friend was privileged that he got to see the outcome, but there's always an outcome. And God is trying to get you to the point where you believe and trust and have faith in him to complete his work, not only in you, but to do extraordinary things all around you because of your faith. Father, thank you for another uh, awesome part of this text the glory of the Lord and God becoming our go-to. We know those are important things, things of priority in our life of faith and trust as we walk with you. Help us to become the people that you want us to become so that we can change the world around us, so that we can be your tools and instruments shaped 
by the hammer, the file, and the furnace, refined into perfection so that like Christ, being conformed to his image, we would say, God, do whatever you have to do in me to accomplish your purposes, even if it means my death. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.